and welcome to episode 234 of Greater Than Code. My name is Jacob Stobel, and I'm joined with my co-panelist, Rain Enrix. Thanks, Jacob, and I'm here with my friend and co-panelist, Jessica Kerr. Thanks, Rain. And today, I'm excited to introduce our guest, Michael Garfield. He's an artist and philosopher, and he helps people navigate our age of accelerating weirdness and cultivate the curiosity and play we need to thrive. He hosts and produces two podcasts, the Future Fossils podcast and the Santa Fe Institute's Complexity podcast. Yay, complexity. Michael acts as an interlocutor for a worldwide community of artists, scientists, and philosophers, a practice that feeds his synthetic and transdisciplinary mind jazz performances in the form of essay, avant guitar music, and painting. You can find him on Bandcamp. It's pretty cool. Refusing to be enslaved by a single perspective, creative medium, or intellectual community, Michael walks through the walls between academia and festival culture, theory, and practice. Michael, welcome to Greater Than Code. Thanks. I am glad to be here, and I hope that I provide a refreshingly different guest experience for listeners, being not not a coder in any kind of traditional sense. Yeah, you're definitely involved in technology. Yeah, and and you know, I think the sort of epistemic framing of programming and algorithms is something that can be applied with no understanding of programming languages as they are currently like widely understood. You know, it's like design is coding. You know, design of the built environment. And coding so, is design. Indeed. Okay, before we go anywhere else, I did not prepare you for this, but we have one question that we ask all of our guests. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I would like to believe that I have a superpower in being able to sort of creatively digest and reconstruct categories so as to draw new associations between them for people. And I feel like I developed that studying integral theory in grad school. I, I did some work under uh, Sean S. Pjornhargens at John F. Kennedy University, looking at the work of and works adjacent to uh, Ken Wilber, who was you know trying to come up with a meta-theoretical framework to integrate all different domains of human knowledge, like all different sort of types of inquiry into, into a single framework that doesn't attempt to reduce any one of them to any other. And then, you know, in that process, I learned what one of my professors, Michael Schwartz, called creative deconstruction. So like showing how art can be science and science can be art and that these aren't like ontologically fixed categories that exist external to us. You know, looking looking at the relationship between science as a practice and, you know, spiritual inquiry as a practice and you know, that, that kind of thing. So it's, it's sort of an irreverent attitude toward the categories that we've constructed that takes a kind of, in a way, kind of like a cynical and uh, pragmatic approach to the way that we define things in our world, you know? So it's it's like, was wrong. (laughs) It's good to get out of the rut. I mean, there are good, obviously there are you got to be careful because words every you know all of these ideas have histories right and so there's you have to decide whether it's worth trying to redefine something for people in order to open up new possibilities in the way that these ideas can be understood and and like uh, manipulated it's not for example an easy task to try and get people to change their idea about what religion is uh, you know, yeah, uh, more than redefine, uh, it's almost like undefine. You know, like Paul Tillich, for example, theologian Paul Tillich said that religion is ultimate concern. So someone can have a religion of money or a religion of sex. But, you know, if you get into these, if you try to interpose that in a debate on like intelligent design versus evolutionary <laughs> theory, you'll, you'll get attacked cosmology. by both sides. Yeah. You'll, I mean, you'll just, Which so is hard it's to like that of money or sex. Yeah. But, you know, people do it. Anyhow. (laughs) Yeah. So deconstructing categories and seeing in between things that fits through your walking through walls 
what categories are you deconstructing and seeing between lately? Well, I don't know. Like lately I've been, I've been paying more attention to the not so much tilting after the windmills of this kind of metamorphic attitude towards categories, but looking at the way that when the opportunity comes to create a truly novel category, what are the forces in play that prevent that, that prevent recognizing novelty as novelty that, uh, you you know, I, I just, yeah, well, you know, I just saw a really excellent talk by UC Berkeley professor Doug Gilbo, I think is how you say his name. I, I'm happy to link his work to y'all in the chat here so that you can share yeah, we'll it. That and he, show notes. he studies category formation and how Ooh. like he was explaining how, you know, most of the research that's been done on convergent categorization is done on established categories. But what happens when you discover something truly new uh, and what his research shows is that there's a, that basically the larger the population, the more likely it is that these categories will converge on something that already, that's like an existing category. And he compared it to like island versus mainland population biogeography. So like there's a, a known dynamic in evolutionary science where genetic drift, which is just sort of this random component of the change in allele frequencies in a population, the larger the population, the less likely it is that a genetic mutation that is otherwise neutral is going to actually like percolate out into the population. And so like on an island, you might get these otherwise neutral mutations that actually take root and saturate an entire community. But on the mainland, they get lost in the noise. And you can look at this in terms of how easy it is for an innovative artistic or musical act to Mm. actually find any purchase. You know, like uh, Spotify bought the data analysis company Echo Nest back in 2015, and they ran this uh, study on where, you know, emergent musical talent comes from. And it comes from places like Australia, the UK and, and Iceland because the networks are small enough. I mean, this is a, this is a finding that's repeated endlessly through like studies of how to create a viral meme, you know, that basically, or, or like another enough way, pool to take hold. Yeah. That, that like basically big science and, you know, large social networks online and these other attempts, you know, th- th- anywhere we look at this sort of economies of scale growing a, a given system, what happens is, and we were talking about this a little before we got on the call, like as a system scales, it becomes less innovative. Like there's more, less energy Inertia? is allocated to the, yeah, 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 bureaucratic overhead, latencies in the, the network that prevent the large networks from adapting with the same agility to novel challenges. I mean, there's like a lot of different ways to like think about this and talk about this, but like it basically amounts to if you want to innovate, you can't do it from the conservative core of an organization. You can't do it from the board of directors, you know, like you have to, you have to go out onto like, you know, where did, why they call it fringe physics? (laughs) It's like, it's because it's on the fringe. You know, and so there's a so kind this would of be like, like if if you have like one remarkably lowercase a agile team inside your enterprise, one team is innovating in development practices, they're gonna get mushed out. Whereas if you have one team innovating like that in a small company, it might spread and it might yeah, I mean, I, become dominant. Yeah, I, I think it's certainly the case that, you know, this speaks to something I've been wondering about in a broader sense, which is how do we recognize the economic value of talents and abilities that are, you know, like how do we recognize a singular individual for their sort of incompressible knowledge and expertise when they don't go through established systems of accreditation like getting a PhD, you know, cause like the academic system is such that basically if you have an innovative 
contribution, but you don't have the credentials that are required to participate in the community uh, of peer review, then people can't even, you're like, your contribution is just invisible, you know? And, and the same is true for like how long it took, you know, if you look at economic models, it took so long for economic models to even begin to start addressing the invisible labor of, of like women in that at home, like domestic labor or eco, what we're now calling ecosystem services, you know? So there's this question of, you know, I just, I should add that I'm kind of like ambivalent about this question because I'm afraid that answering it in an effective way, like how do we make all of these things economically visible would just sort of accelerate the rate at which the capitalist machine is capable of co-opting and exploiting all of these. Yeah. And like, you know, you also have this like Scott seeing like a state thing where in order to be able to even perceive that that stuff that's going on, it has to become standardized and you can't dissect the bird to observe its song. Right. Totally. So like, obviously like it took almost no time at all for consumer culture to commodify the psychedelic experience and like start using, you know, to co-opt this psychedelic aesthetic and start using it in advertising campaigns for Levi's jeans and Campbell's soup and, and that kind of thing. And so like, it's this question of a moving frontier, you know, that as soon as you have the language to talk about it, it's not the ineffable anymore. And, yeah. you know, there's a value to the ineffable and there's a, there's a value to, you know, it's, it's related to this question of, the exploitation of indigenous peoples by large pharmaceutical companies, like their ethnobotanical knowledge, you know, how do you make the potential value of biodiversity something that can be manufactured into medicine at scale without destroying the rainforest and the people who live in it? And, you know, like everywhere I look, I see this question. And so it's, you know, for me lately, it's been less about you know, how do we creatively deconstruct the categories we have so much as it is, what is the utility of not knowing how to categorize something at all? And then how do we fix the skewed incentive structures in society so as to value that which we currently do not know how to value? You know, like we, don't like have, a we have for it. right, like, like right now, we like maybe one of the best examples, even though this is the worst example in another way is that you know, a, a large fraction of the human genome has been patented by Monsanto, even though it has n no known current biomedical utility. This is what uh, Lewis Hyde in his book, common as air called the third enclosure of the commons. So you have the enclosure of the land that everyone used to be able to hunt on. And then you have the enclosure of intellectual property in terms of patents for known, known utilities, known applications. And then like over the last few decades, you're starting to see large companies buy their way into and defend patents for things that actually don't like they, they're, they're just basic. It's like speculative. They're just gambling on the idea that eventually we'll have some use for this and that it's worth lawyering up to defend that potential future use. But that's, it's kind of akin to recognizing that we need to fund translational work. We need to fund synthesis. We need to fund, you know, blue sky interdisciplinary research for which there are, you know, we don't know, we don't have an expected return on investment here. We just, cause mo you know, there's, it's one of there's those a, things that yeah. it's going to help. You're going to get tremendous benefits out of it, but you can't say which ones. Right. I mean, it's like, it's a shift kind of perhaps akin to the move that I'm seeing conservation biology make right now from let's preserve this charismatic species to let's do everything we can to restore biodiversity rather than, you know, like that biodiversity itself is generative and should be valued in its own regard, you know? So like, 
diverse research teams, diverse workplace teams. We know that there is what uh, University of Michigan Professor Scott Page calls the diversity bonus. And you don't need to know. And in fact, you you cannot know what the bonus is up front. Like, you yeah. you know, it's, it's specifically. It's, you, yeah. you can't like draw the line of causality forward to the benefit because the point of diversity is that you get benefits you never thought of. Exactly. And, you know, so again, this gets into this question of, you know, like I sit as a science communications staffer uh, in a position where I'm constantly in this sort of uh, weird dissonant interzone between the elite researchers at the Santa Fe Institute where I work and the community of complex systems enthusiasts that have grown up around this organization. And it's a complete mismatch in scale between this org that has basically insulated itself so as to preserve the island of innovation mm -hmm. that is required for really groundbreaking research. But then also they've they have this this reputation that that far outstrips their ability to actually respond to people that are one step further out on the fringe from them, you know? And, and so, you know, I'm, I, I find myself asking, you know, historically SFI was founded by Los Alamos national laboratory physicists, mostly that were sort of disenchanted with the idea that they were going to have to research science, that their, their science was limited to that, which could be basically argued as a, a, a national defense initiative, and they just wanted to like think about the deepest mysteries of the cosmos. So, like, what is to SFI as SFI is to Los Alamos? Like, what is, mm. what is the, you know, there are even in really radical organizations, like, there's a point at which they've matured, and there are questions that are beyond the horizon of that which a particular community is willing to indulge. You know, like I find in general, like yeah. I'm, I'm really fascinated by questions about the nonlinearity of time or about weird ontology. And I'm, I'm currently talking to about a dozen other academics and para-academics about how to, how to try and, like, I'm, I'm working on help, or helping to organize a, a working group of people that can apply rigorous academic approaches to asking questions that are completely taboo inside of academia. Like, questions that challenge some of the the most fundamental assumptions of modernity, such as like there being a distinction between self and other, or, you know, the idea that there are things that are fundamentally inaccessible to quantitative research, you know, these kinds of things like, you know, how do we, how do we make space for that kind of inquiry when there's absolutely no way to argue it in terms of you should fund this uh, and that's not just for money. That's also for like attention because the demands on the time and attention of academics are so intense that even if they have interest in this stuff, they don't have the freedom to pursue it in their careers. That's just one of many areas where I feel I find this kind of line of inquiry manifesting right now. Reminds me a lot of the, um, this model of uh, the edge of chaos that came from uh, Packard and Langton back in the late seventies, like came out of chaos theory, this idea that there's this liminal transitionary zone between stability and chaos. And that this is this sort of boiling zone where self-organization happens and innovation happens, but also that this zone is itself not static. It gets pushed around by other forces. Yeah. I mean, and that's where life is right? Life exists. And that was Langton's point, you know, that life exists at the edge of chaos that, you know, you, it's right there at, at, at the phase transition boundary between, you know, like what is it that separates a, a stone from a, a, a raging bonfire or, you know, like that's not, mm -hmm. you know, just like the, the Goldilocks zone kind of, kind of question. Yeah, totally. And, you know, these places that were at the edge of chaos that were innovative can ossify. They can move into the, the zone of stability. It's not so much that they move. It's that, I don't know, maybe it's both. You know, where the, the frontier is, is constantly in motion. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, 
again, I, like I, I tend to think about these things in a kind of topographical or geographical sense, you know, where the island is growing, you know, we're sitting on a volcano and there's lots you can do with that metaphor. Obviously, it doesn't make sense. You can't build your house inside the volcano, right? <laughs> but yeah. but you want to you want to be close enough to be able to like watch and describe as new land erupts, you know, but at a safe distance. So like where is that sweet spot where you have rigor and you have support, but you're not trapped within a, a bureaucracy or or an ossified set of institutional conventions. Yeah. Or if the island is like going up, if the, the earth is moving the island up and so the coastline keeps expanding outward and you built your house right on the beach, as in you got into React when it was the new hotness and you learned all about it and you became the expert and now you and then you had this great house on the beach and now you have a great house in the middle of town because the frontier, the hotness has moved on as our, our massive technology has increased and the, the island raises up. I mean, you can't both identify as being on the edge and identify with any single uh, category of knowledge. Yeah, I, it's tricky. I, I saw Nora Bateson talking about this on Twitter recently. She's someone who I love for her subversiveness. I mean, you know, her father, Gregory Bateson, was a, you know, a major player in the articulation of cybernetics. And, you know, she's she's awesome in that sense of like the... I don't know, like the the minister's daughter kind of a way of, you know, being extremely well-versed in complex systems thinking and yet also aware that these attempts, that there's a subtle reductionism that comes in that misses, from that, well, that comes at like, you know, like we think about like systems outside. thinking as not being, it's not reductionist because it's not trying to explain biology in terms of the interactions of atoms it acknowledges yeah. that there's like genuine emergence that happens at each of these these levels and yet to articulate that it's you know one of the things that happens is everything has to be squashed into numbers you know and so there are I, that's yeah it's it's like this issue of like how do you quantify something um, the idea that it, it's not real if you can't measure it in numbers Right. And that belies this bias towards thinking that because you can't quantify something now means it can't be quantified. And, and so you it's just like this area, which you know, way the flame is going to go in the fire. That doesn't mean the fire doesn't burn. <laughs> right. I mean, yes. Yeah, so it's like, you know, she's interesting, you know, cause she talks about warm data as, mm -hmm. you know, this terrain uh, or this experience where we don't know how to talk about it yet, but that's actually what makes it so juicy and, and meaningful and instructive. And, and As opposed to taking yeah. it out of context. Leave it in context, even though we don't know how to do some magical analysis on it there. Right. And I think this starts to generate some kind of meaningful insights into the problem of, you know, like the, the reproducibility crisis. You know, like just as an example... I think science is generally moving towards context dependent insight and away from, even at the Santa Fe Institute, nobody's looking for a single unifying theory of everything anymore. You know, it's, it's far more illuminating and useful and rigorous to look at how different models are practical given different applications. Like I remember in college, there's like half a dozen major different ways to define a, a biological species. And I was supposed to get up in front of a class and argue for one over the other five. And I was like, this is preposterous. Like, you know, it's so like concretely pun kind of intended biosphere two, which was this, this project uh, that I, I know the folks here at Synergy Ranch in Santa Fe at the Institute of Ecotechnics who are responsible for creating this like unbelievable historic effort to miniaturize the entire biosphere inside of a building. You know, they had a coral reef and a rainforest and a savanna and a cloud desert like the, uh, the Atacama. And, and there was one other, I forget, but they had, you know, they, it was, it was intended as a kind of like open-ended ecological experiment that was, supposed to iterate like a hundred times or like 50 times over a hundred years. It was, 
it, they didn't know what they were looking for. They just wanted to gather data and then, you know, continue these two year enclosures where, you know, a team of people were living inside this building and trying to, you know, mm-hmm. trying to reproduce the entire earth biosphere in miniature, you know, so like that first enclosure is remembered historically as a failure because they miscalculated the rate at which they would be producing carbon dioxide. And they ended up having to open the building and let in fresh air and like import resources. Right. They learned something, but like that project was funded by Ed Bass, who in 1994, I think called in hostile corporate takeover expert, Steve Bannon to force like to go in there with a federal team and, and basically issue a restraining order on these people and forcibly evict them from the experiment that they had created because it was seen as an embarrassment because they had been spun in this way in, in international media as being uncredentialed artists rather than scientists who really should not have the keys to this thing. And so like it, it was one of these instances where people regard this as a, as a scientific failure. And yet when you look at the way so much of science is being practiced now, be it in the domains of complex systems or in machine learning, what they were doing was easily like 20 or 30 years ahead of its time. Like, oh, well, no wonder like, they didn't appreciate it. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, it's like you don't like they went in not knowing what they were going to get out of it, but there was this tragic mismatch between the logic of Ed Bass's billionaire family about what it means to have a return on an investment and the logic of ecological engineering, where you're just sort of like poking at a system to see what will happen and you don't even know where to set the controls yet, you know? So anyway. And it got too big. You talked about the media. It got too widely disseminated and became embarrassed because it wasn't on an island. It wasn't in a place where the genetic drift can become normal. Right. Like, yeah, it it was suddenly subject to the constraints imposed upon it in terms of like the way that people were being taught science in public school in the 1980s. You know, that like, this is what the scientific method is. You start with a hypothesis and it's like, what if, you're, what if your projects that are relevant to that situation? Exactly. So, you know, to even, and, and, you know, and honestly, the same thing applies to, you know, other computational forms of science. Like it took a long time for the techniques pioneered at the Santa Fe Institute to be regarded as legitimate. I'm thinking of like cellular automata and agent-based modeling and computer simulation generally. I mean, Stephen Wolfram did a huge uh, service in some sense to the normalization of those things in publishing a new kind of science, that massive book in like whatever it was, 2004 or something, where he said like, you know, look, we can run algorithmic experiments and that's different from the science that you're familiar with. But it's also setting aside for a moment the attribution failure that that book is in acknowledging who actually pioneered a new kind of science. Um, at least it got some information out. Right. At least at least it managed to shift the goalpost in terms of what the expectations are, you know, like what constitutes a scientific experiment in the first place. So you know, categories. Yeah. So like I think about, for example, uh, research that was done on plant growth in a basement. Uh, I forget who it was that, that did this. I think I heard this from, it was either Doug Rushkoff or Charles Eisenstein that was talking about this, where you got two completely different results uh, and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And then they realized that it was at different moments in the lunar cycle and that it didn't matter if you, it didn't matter if you put your plant experiment in a basement and lit everything with artificial bulbs and all this stuff like art, you know, that like rather than sunlight, rather than clean air, like if you could control for everything, but that there's always a context outside your context. And so, you know, this notion that no matter how cleverly you try to frame your model, that when it comes time to actually experiment on these things in the real world, that there's always going to be some externality you've missed, you know, and that this has real, serious and grave implications in terms of our economic models, because there's always, there will always be someone that's falling through the cracks, 
you know, how, how do we actually account for all of the stakeholders in just in, in conversations about the ecological cost of like dropping a new factory over here, for example, right? Like it's only recently that people anywhere on this in the modern world are starting to think about granting ecosystems, right? You know, uh, legal protections as entities befitting of personhood and what, like this kind of thing. Have we copyrighted those yet? <laughs> so yeah, all of that. There's plenty of places to go from there. I'm sure. Well, this does remind me of one of the things that Stafford Beer tried was he said, you know, ponds are viable systems. They're ecologies. They're adaptive. They're self-sustaining. Instead of trying to model how a pond works, what if we just hook the inputs of the business process into the pond and then hook the adaptions made by the pond as the outputs back into the business process and use the pond as the as the controlling system without trying to understand what makes a <laughs> pond good at adapting. And that is so outside of the box that it blows my mind that he was doing this, you know, well, I guess it was the sixties or whatever, but like this goes well beyond black boxing, right? Yeah. So there's kind of a related insight that I saw. Uh, Michelle Gervon gave a, a Santa Fe Institute community lecture a few years ago on reservoir computing, which, I mean, I, maybe mm -hmm. uh, most of your audience is familiar with, but just for the sake of it, this is joining a machine learning system to a source of analog chaos, basically. So like putting a computer on a bucket of water and then just kicking the bucket every once in a while to generate waves so that you're feeding chaos into the output of the machine learning algorithm to prevent overfitting. And again and again and again, you see this value where this is apparently the evolutionary value of play and possibly also of dreaming. Uh, there's a lot of good research on both of these areas right now that learning systems are all basically hill climbing algorithms that need to be periodically disrupted from climbing the wrong local optimum. So in reservoir computing, by adding a source of natural chaos to their uh, weather prediction algorithms, they were able to double the horizon at which they were able to forecast meteorological events uh, past the mathematic limit that had been like proven and established for this. That is like, oh, yeah, like we live in a noisy it's world. It's provably impossible. doesn't mean we can't do something that's effectively the same thing. That's close enough. Right. So like there's actually, you know, in that example, I think that there's hope. I think there's a strong argument for the value of that, which we can't understand as just a, like it just, it's like, it's, it's actually important. I mean, it's so much has been written about the value of slack of dreaming, of taking a long walk of daydreaming, letting your mind wander to scientific discovery, you know? So this is where great innovations come from is like, I'm going to sleep on it or I'm going to go on vacation, you know, like I just getting stuck on an idea, getting fixated on a problem. We actually tend to foreclose on the possibility of answering that problem entirely. And it's like, it's, it's actually, you know, there's, there's a good reason to, I think this is why Silicon Valley has, has recognized the instrumental value of microdosing incidentally <laughs> that this is like you know that you you actually want to in, inject a little noise into your algorithm and like knock yourself off the false peak that you've stranded yourself on because if you aim for predictability and consistency if you insist on reasonableness you'll miss everything interesting or you know another good way to put it is what is it reasonable women don't make history mm. <laughs> You know, that like there is, there is actually a place for the... You don't change the system by maximally conforming. Right. You know, so it's... Sorry, I'm, there is a place for... Oh, that, I mean, just there, there is a place for nonconformity. And, and it's, it's a thing where it's like, you know, are we... I, I really hope, and I, th I have some optimism that what we'll see by the time my daughter is old enough to join the workforce 
is that we'll see a move in this direction where nonconformity has been integrated somehow into our understanding of how to run a business that, you know, that we, we actively seek out people that are capable of doing this for the same reason that we saw over the 20th century. We saw a movement from like one size fits all manufacturing to like design your own Nike shoes. There's like this much more bespoke approach. Yeah. You know, so it's like, we know that if we can tailor our systems so that they can adapt across multiple different scales, that they're not just exploiting economies of scale that ultimately slash the redundancy that allows an organization to adapt to, you know, that that if we can find a way to actually generate a kind of a fractal structure in the governance of organizations in the way that, you know, like we have reflexes, right? Like the, the body already does this. You don't have to sit there and like, think about everything you do. And if you did, you die like right away. You know, like you to, <laughs> yeah. if you yeah. if if you had to pass every single twitch all the way up the chain to we your frontal to cortex on the list, <laughs> right? Like if you had to sit there and approve every single, oh you know, gosh. heartbeat, you'd be so yeah. dead. And and yeah, so like that's how, an energy allocation, and it all needs to go through you so that you can have control. I just wanted to mention, like that reminded me of a thing that uh, Klaus Krippendorf. Uh, who's a cybernetics guy said that there is virtue in the act of delegating one's agency to trustworthy systems. Like we are talking, but I don't need to care about how the packets get from my machine to yours. And I don't want to care about that, but there's a trade-off here where people find that when they surrender their agency, that this can be oppressive. So how do we find this trade-off? So yeah, just, to anchor it again in, in, in something that I, I find really helpful, you know, thinking about the way that convenience draws people into these compacts with the market and with the state. And so, you know, you look over the last several hundred years or, or you know, thousand years in the West, and you see more and more of what used to be taken for granted as the, you know, the extent, you know, in terms of like the cert- functions that are performed by the extended family or, you know, by the neighborhood life in a city, by your church congregations or whatever. And all of that stuff has been outboarded to commercial interests and to, you know, federal level oversight because it's, it's like just more efficient to do it that way at the timescales that matter that are visible to those systems and yet, like what COVID has shown us is that like we actually need neighborhoods that like suddenly it doesn't, you know, my, my wife and I, it was easy to make the decision to move across country to a place where we didn't know anybody to take a good job, you know, but then suddenly when you're just alone in your house all the time and you've got nobody to help you raise your kids, this seems extremely dumb. And so there's like that question of, you know, just as I feel like modern science is coming back around to acknowledging that a lot of what was captured in old wives tales and in traditional indigenous knowledge, you know, ecological knowledge systems that we regarded as, you know, were regarded by the enlightenment as, uh, you know, just rumor or, uh, superstition. Yeah. That it turns out that these things actually had, they had merit. They were evolved. There was and, you know, wisdom I, in them. Right. That there was, again, it wasn't rendered in the language that allowed it to be the subject of quantitative research until very recently. And then suddenly it was, and suddenly we had to circle back around and, you know, science is basically in this position where they have to sort of canonize Galileo. You know, they're like, ah, crap, we, you know, we burned all these witches, but it turns out they were right. You know, that like, there's that piece of it. And so I think relatedly, one of the things that we're seeing and, and, uh, economist samples and Wendy Carlin have written about this is the return of the civil society, the return of mutual aid networks and of gift economies and of the extended family and of, you know, buildings that are built around in courtyards rather than this sort of 
you know, Jeffersonian, everyone on their own plot of land kind of approach that, you know, we're starting to realize that we had completely emptied out the topsoil, basically, of all of these community relationships in order to standardize things for like a mass big agricultural approach that on the short scale actually does generate greater yield, right? Like you actually get, it's easier to have conversations with people who agree with you than it is like it's in a way it's like inexpedient to try and cross the aisle and have a conversation with someone with whom you deeply and profoundly disagree. But the more polarized we become as a civilization, the more unstable we become as a civilization. And so over this larger time scale, we actually have to find ways to incentivize talking to people with whom you disagree or we're screwed. Like we're kicking legs out from under the table, you know, at this point I have to, name drop Habermas because he had this idea that there were two fundamental cognitive interests that humans have uh, that direct their attempts to acquire knowledge. One is a technical interest in achieving goals through prediction and control. And the other is a practical interest in ensuring mutual understanding. And his analysis was that advanced capitalist societies, uh, the technical interest dominates at the expense of the practical interest and that knowledge produced by sort of empirical, scientific, analytic sciences becomes the prototype of all knowledge. And I think that's sort of what you're talking about here, that we've lost touch with this other form of knowledge. It's not seen as valuable. And the scientific method, the sci- you know, analytical approaches have come to dominate. Yeah, so precisely. <laughs> so, you know, again, like there's – there. I think, you know, in general – we've become sort of impoverished in our imagination because again, the expectations, there's a shifting baseline, you know? So like what people expect to pull out of the ocean now is like a quarter, like a a fish that you might catch off, uh, you know, just a commercial or like, you know, like a, a, a recreational fishing expedition. It's like a quarter the size of the same species of fish you might've caught 50, 70 years ago. And that's, you know, when people pull up this thing and they're like, oh, look at, you know, they feel all proud of themselves. And like, I feel like that's what's going on with us in terms of our, uh, we no longer even recognize or, or didn't until very recently recognize that we had been unwittingly colluding in the erosion of some very essential levels of organization in human society and that we had basically sold our our souls to market efficiency and efficient you know efficient state level governance and now it's a it's a huge mess to try and like understand you know you look at like occupy wall street and stuff like that and like the, it just seems like such an enormous pain in the ass to try and process things in that way but it's because we're having to like relearn how to govern neighborhoods and govern small communities and make business decisions at the scale of like a a bioregion rather than a nation, you know? Yeah. It's a scale thing. I love the phrase topsoil of community relationships because when you talk about the purposive knowledge, the, uh, whatever you called it, rain, that is goal seeking. It's like the one tall tree that is like, I am the tallest tree and it keeps growing taller and taller and taller. And it doesn't see that it's falling over because there's no trees next to it to protect it from the wind. It's that, that weaving together between all the trees and the different knowledge and the different people. Our soul is there. Our resilience is there. So you keep talking about scale. Are you, are you talking about scale theory? Yeah. Scaling laws. Like, you know, Jeffrey West's stuff. Louis Betancourt is another researcher at the University of Chicago who does really excellent work in urban scaling. I, I just saw a talk from him this morning that was really, really quite interesting about uh, there being a sweet spot where a city can exist between how thinly it's distributed infrastructurally over the, over a given area versus, you know, like the, how congested it is, right? And because population and infrastructure scale differently, uh, you know, they scale at different rates than, so, you know, you get, if I you get remember it, my, my West correctly, just cause I suspect uh-huh. that not all of our listeners are familiar with, with scale theory. 
there's this idea that there are certain things that grow super linearly as things scale and certain things that grow sublinearly. So for example, uh, the larger a city gets, you get like a 15% more restaurants, but you also get 15% more flu, but you also get 15% less traffic. Yeah. So anything that depends on infrastructure scales sublinearly. So a city of, you know, 2 million people has 185% the number of gas stations, but anything that scales, anything having to do with the number of interactions between people scales super linearly. So you get 115% of the, uh, rather you get, you know, what is it? 230. So anyway, yeah, it's 150, it's 85% up versus uh, 115% up. So, patents, but also crime, and also that just the general pace of life scale at 115% per capita. And so like, this is, not, you know, disease transmission. And so you get into these weird cases where, and this links back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier, where people move into the city because it's, you know, per unit, like, like in a given day, you have so much more choice, you have so much more opportunity than you would in your agrarian Chinese community. And that's why Shenzhen is basically like two generations old, you know, like 20 million people and none of them have grandparents living in Shenzhen, you know, uh, because they're all attracted to this thing. But like at scale, what that means is that everyone is sort of converging on the same answer. You know, everyone's moving into Shenzhen and away from their farming community. And so you end up like in a way it's like, it's not that, that world is any more innovative. It's just, again, easier to sort of capture that innovation and therefore like measure it. But then uh, back to like what we were saying about, you know, convergent categories in like biogeography, it's like if somebody comes up with a brilliant idea in the farm, like you're not necessarily going to see it. But if somebody comes up with the same brilliant idea in the city, you might also not see it for different reasons. And yeah. So anyway, I'm a, kind of a ramble, but. So the optimal scale for innovation is not the individual and it's not 22 million. It's in between. Well, I think, I feel like at the level of a, a city, you're no longer talking about individuals almost in a way. Like at that point, you're talking about firms. Like a, a city is in, is like a rainforest in which the fauna are like companies. Whereas a neighborhood is an ecosystem in which the fauna are like individual people. And so like to equate one with the other is, you know, a, a potential point of confusion, you know, like w maybe an easier way to think about this would be like multicellular life, you know, like my brain is capable of making all kinds of innovative, you know, innovations that like any cell or organ in my body could not make on its own. Like there is a clear, there's a difference there, but like, and, and it like, right. Options. Like it's easy. It's easier, however, for a cell to mutate if it doesn't live inside of me. Right. Because if it does, it's going to be, the it's like cancer. Come attack it. Yeah. Right. My body, my body will come and, you know, regularly. Like, you are that. different. You are right out. Yeah. So it's sort of like, it's not about innovation as some sort of, you know, whole cloth, category again it's about you know like different kinds of innovation that are made that are emergent at different levels of organization yeah so it's just the question of what kinds of innovation are made possible when you have something like the large hadron collider you know versus when you've got like five people in a room around a pizza are you want to find the appropriate scale for the entity for the system, you know, that's like the actual level of granularity at which you're, you're trying to like, look at this stuff, you know? So. Can I try to put a few things together here in potentially a new way and see if it's anything. So we talked about the edge of chaos earlier and we're talking about scale theory and uh, now, and there is a sort of, in both, there's this sort of idea of fractal geometry, you know, this idea that a coastline gets larger, the smaller your ruler is. 
And in scale theory, there's this idea of space filling that you have to fill the space with things like capillaries or roads and so on. But in the human lung, for example, if you unfurled all of the surface area, you'd fill up like a football field, I think. And so maybe there's this idea that there's complexity that's possible that's sort of made possible by the, the fractal shape of this sort of liminal region at the edge of chaos. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly, I think, as you know, basically uh, what it is like you're, you know, in maximizing surface area, like you do within a lung, then you're maximizing exposure, you know? So if you, you know, if the scientific community were operating on the insights that it has generated in a deliberate way, then you would try to find a way to actually incorporate the fringe physics community or, you know, like you would, there's gotta be a way to use that as the reservoir of chaos rather than trying to shut that chaos out of your, your hill climbing algorithm. And then yeah, at that point, it's, it's just like, where's the threshold, you know, like how much can you invite before it becomes a distraction from getting anything done? You know, when it's like, it's too noisy to be coherent and, you know, arguably what the internet has done for humankind has thrown it in completely the opposite direction where, you know, we've optimized entirely for surface area instead of for coherence, you know? And so now we have like, you know, nobody, no two people seem to be able to agree on reality anymore. That's not useful either. Maybe there's also like a connectivity thing here where if I want to get from one side of the city to the other, there, there are 50 different routes. But if I want to get from one city to another, there's a highway that does it. Yeah, totally. So it's it's just a matter of, you know, rather than thinking about what allows for the most efficient decisions in some sense, you know, at one given time scale, it's how can we design hierarchical information aggregation structures so as to create a, like a wise balance between the demands on efficiency that are held at and maintained at different scales. So like SFI researcher, Jessica Flack talks about this in her work on collective computation and primate hierarchies where you see she's, it's, it's a weird kind of awkward thing, but basically there is an evolutionary argument for police, you know, that like it turns out that having, a police system is preventing violence. And this is, this is mathematically demonstrable, but like you also have to make sure that there's enough agency at the individual level in the system that the police aren't like in charge of everything going on. It's not just complex. It's complicated. I don't know. We've thrown out a ton of stuff on this call. I don't know. You know, maybe this is just sort of wetting people's appetite for, uh, you know, something a little bit more focused and, you know, this concise. Gonna, this episode is going to have some extensive show notes. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely time to move into reflections. You were talking at the very beginning about Spotify, like how when sort of like unknown ideas are able to like find their tribe and sort of like germinate. I was reading about like how Netflix sort of does business and it's very common for them to like make some new content and then see how it goes for like 30 days and then just kill it because they say, oh, this isn't taking off. It's not going to, we're not going to make more of it. And a lot of people can get really upset with that. Like there, there've definitely been some really great things out of Netflix that I'm like, for one, on the one hand, like, why are you canceling this? Like I really wanted more. And it seems like there's a lot of the people that did too. And what that's making me think about is, well, for one thing, like, I think, like, it seems like Netflix, from my experience, like, is not actually marketing some of their best stuff. Um, like, you would never know it's there, just in the way of how you're supposed to find things um, or unknown things. But also, like, I'm thinking about how, just generally speaking, some of the best ideas, TV shows, music, whatever, are the kinds of things that aren't going there's not going to be an established container like group of people that you can say like we want to find 
white men ages 25 to 35 and we're going to we're going to dump it on their home screen uh because if anyone's going to like it it's them and if they do then we keep it and if we don't then we don't like the best i feel like the best things are like we don't actually know who those groups are going to be and it's it's sort of going to sort of have a weird constellation of of people that i couldn't actually classify so yeah i was just thinking about how that's an interesting challenge sweet rain you have a thing yeah, i have another thing i was just reminded of von forster who was one of the founders of second order cybernetics he has an ethical imperative which is act always so as to increase the number of choices and i think about this actually a lot in my day-to-day work about maximizing the option value that I carry with me as I'm doing my work, like deferring certain decisions and so on. But I think it also makes sense in our discussion as well. True. Mine is about externalities. We talked about how whatever you do, whatever your business does, whatever your technology does, there's always going to be effects on the world, on the context and the context of the context that you couldn't predict. That doesn't mean don't do anything. It does mean look for those. Recognize that there's going to be surprises and try to find them. It reminds me of sometimes I think in interviewing, we're like, there are cognitive biases. So in order to be fair, we must not use human judgment, which is, <laughs> which is not helpful. I mean, yes, there are cognitive biases. So look for them and try to compensate. Don't try to like use only something predictable like an algorithm that's not helpful that's it yeah i mean just to speak to a little bit of what each of you have said you know i think for me one of the key takeaways here is that if you're optimizing for future opportunity if you're trying to if you if you're trying to and in a way that's i think i saw mit defined intelligence in this way you know that and you know, AI could be measured in terms of its ability to, you know, AGI rather, it could be measured in terms of its ability to increase the number of game steps available to it uh, or options available to it in the next, in the next step of, you know, an unfolding puzzle or whatever that, you know, it's, you know, superhuman AGI is going to break out of any kind of jail we try to put it in, you know, just because it's doing better at this. But the thing is that like, it's, that's useless if we take it in terms of one spatiotemporal scale. You know, we're, we're evolutionary dynamics have found a way to do this in a rainforest that optimizes, you know, biodiversity and the, you know, the richness of feeding relationships in a food web without this like short sighted quarterly return maximizing type of approach, you know? And so the question is like, yeah, do you want to, are you trying to, trying to create more opportunities for yourself right now? Are you trying to create more opportunities for your kids or are you, you know, or are you trying to transcend the rivalrous dynamics in this sort of like, you've, you've set yourself up for like intergenerational warfare if you pick only one of those. Right. And so like the tension between feed yourself versus feed your kids is resolved in a number of different ways in different species that have different, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is exactly, Rain, it is in the chat, you, you said it's, it reminds you of the trade-off between efficiency and adaptability. And it's like, yeah, you know, arguably adaptability is efficiency aggregated over, a you know, when you're looking at it over a, a longer time scale, you know, because you don't want to have to rebuild civilization from scratch. So, you know, I just, I think it's just important to add the dimension of time and to consider that this is something that's going on at multiple different levels of organization at the same time. And that's uh, hugely important to, you know, how we actually think about these topics. Speaking of scales of time, you've thought about these interesting topics for an hour or so now, and I hope you'll continue thinking about them over weeks and consult the show notes and... Uh, Michael, how can people find out more about you? I'm on Twitter and Instagram. If people prefer diving in social media first, I don't recommend it. I would prefer you go to you know, patreon.com 
slash Michael Garfield and, and find future fossils podcast there. I have a lot of other stuff I do, you know, the music and the art and everything feeds into everything else. So, you know, because I'm a parent and because I don't want all of my income coming from my day job, I guess Patreon is where I'd suggest people go first. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, to support the podcast, you can also go to patreon.com slash greater than code. And then you, if you donate even a dollar, you can join our Slack channel and join the conversation. It'll be fun. Thank you.